So take your Bibles, if you will, and go to Matthew, the book of Matthew, chapter 4. Matthew is the first book uh, in the New Testament, of course. And if you're following along with our scripture immersion, I did not make a slide for that, but in our scripture immersion, we have began a 90-day trek through the New Testament. A 90-day trek through the New Testament. Uh, and even if you start right now, you can go on, uh, on our website, you can see that um, there's there's plenty of 90 days through the New Testament. They're all about the same, maybe a chapter here that's different, uh, but you're all finished in, of course, 90 days. And again, even if you start right now, uh, you'll finish January 1st, 2nd, somewhere around there. Uh, but it is, it is good to be together in unison as, as a church. So with that said, all throughout um, October, November, and December, I'm going to do my very best to, of course, follow the Lord, but in preaching alongside of where we're at in that reading, uh, in, in that 90-day schedule. So today we're in Matthew chapter 4, and uh, I'm going to just begin reading right there in verse number 1. And I've, let me just go ahead and do this. I've entitled this message, The Temptation of Christ. Now in this, we're going to see Christ as our example. And to my knowledge, this, this is a two-point message. To my knowledge, I've never preached a two-point message. Uh, this will be the first for me. And uh, even in, in the delivery of this message, it comes, uh, in my mind, a little different than normal. Um, but even though it's two points, there's a lot of subpoints. So we'll fill it in. You won't get out of here early. So anyway, so look at verse number one of Matthew chapter four. The Bible says, Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness uh, to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterwards a hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Verse 5 says, Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Verse 7 says, And Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world, and the glory of them, and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan. For it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for allowing us to be in your house. We thank you for this passage of Scripture. Lord, uh, we learn so much from this passage, even things that we won't touch on tonight, or this morning rather. Uh, so many things. Lord, I pray that uh, we can see a great example that you've given us in fighting off the temptations of the devil. Lord, and we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you uh, that we serve a risen Savior, a Savior who has no sin, never never even close to sin, Lord. And we thank you so much for that, Lord. Help us to see you high lifted up in the text this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this great passage here, uh, you've probably not heard a whole lot of sermons, or maybe you have from, from this uh, chapter here. But it teaches us a lot about the greatness of our Savior. It teaches us much about Jesus Christ. We see some of his divinity, of course. Now, he's all God and all man, but we see his divinity here. But more than that, we see his humanity. We see him as a, as a man. 
You know, James one three, uh, James chapter one verse thirteen says that God cannot be tempted with evil, but Hebrews four fifteen tells us that Jesus was in all points tempted, like as we are, yet without sin. So the truth of the matter is that Jesus is both God and man, and because man deals with temptation, Jesus must also deal with temptation as a man. If he came and and if I can put it this way, and every time he was tempted, every time he fell into our sin or our understanding of humanity, if every time he just pulled out his divinity card, it would not work that way. He was all man. And as a man, he had to deal with the things that we deal with. It was part of the plan. Many times we look at the cross and we see him up there on the cross and we see, of course he can take the pain. He's God. Well, he took that pain as a man. And it felt as bad to him or it hurt him as much as it would hurt you and I. So as a man, he had to go through these temptations. It was a part of the plan, as we will see. As a basic example, God cannot be tempted. God, as we understand God, God the Father, uh, cannot be tempted with hunger because he does not hunger. There's actually a passage in the Old Testament. God is talking to the children of Israel. He says, even if I had hunger, I wouldn't tell you because there's nothing you could do about it. How do you feed a God? He's never hungry. But Jesus, as God in the flesh, was hungry, was thirsty, was tired. He felt pain, weary, sleepy, all the things that we deal with. When we wake up in the morning, our alarm goes off, always, you know, a little bit before you want to go off. And then we hit the snooze for nine minutes. I don't know why they're nine minutes, but we snooze for nine minutes or whatever. And we're tired. Jesus had that same, that same challenges, if you will, in his body. And in this passage here in Matthew chapter 4, we find him as our great example, and many other passages, of course. But this passage teaches, this passage here teaches us a little about the Lord Jesus Christ, but also about the wiles of the devil. We see Satan in this passage. You know, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9 says this: be sober to us, to, to, to believers, be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. I think we read that and we're like, eh, a roaring lion. The word of God calls him. And the Bible continues, with whom resist steadfast in the face, in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Knowing that the same afflictions, if I may, also are in our Savior. So this passage here in Matthew chapter 4 informs us of a formidable foe called the devil. And just in an overview of this passage, I'm a couple of things that we won't get into the weeds, so to speak, but we see a little bit about some of the powers of the devil. I mean, in verse 5, the Bible tells us that he took Jesus in the flesh and put him somewhere. Wow. I mean, have anybody ever been moved that way? I have not. He took him and set him on the pinnacle of a temple in Jerusalem, in the Holy Land. The Holy Land, God, Satan putting on top of that. And in verse 8, we see that he took him to an exceeding high mountain. He physically moved him to an exceeding high mountain. And however this played out, there's a lot we don't know, but we can easily see Satan's power over humanity. Even in the timing. Even in the timing. Notice that he, didn't, he did not tempt Jesus on day 5. He didn't tempt him on day 35. He tempted, him, he tempted him when it was over, when he was really hungry, when it was all done, and he tempted him on the last day, not a day sooner. 
And as we, as we look at this text, I want to also point out that while Satan is not all-knowing, he's not omniscient, he's not all-powerful, he does wreak havoc on humanity. Many of us, have, all of us have experienced that. He wreaks havoc on humanity. He's a roaring lion. And he walks about desiring to devour us. Many times in the military, we have, you know, overseas, we have those things called forward operating bases, fobs, if you will. And inside that fob, we can kind of like, you know, put your feet up, if you will. And, inside, and outside those things, we're, we're game on, you know, locked and loaded, keen and, and looking for the enemy. Well, this is not our home. We are outside the fob, if you will, outside the forward operating base, and we must be sure we're, where we're at, if you will, in this battle, because Satan wreaks havoc on us. And this temptation here is specifically on the humanity of Jesus Christ and his deity. And again, I've already said this, but sometimes it's easier for us to chalk up our Savior's victories to his divinity. And of course, there are some things that he accomplished that only God can do. Only God can raise the dead. Only God can come out of a grave where he was dead prior to that. But never overlook the fact that he was also human, all human. And the things that he endured as a man, again, I want to make sure this comes across. He did so as a man, as in the temptation here. In fact, notice our Savior's first response there in verse 4. He says, verse 4 says, But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not be tempted. Who is the devil tempting? He's tempting the Lord. And the Lord responds with, Man shall not live by bread alone. And we'll come back to this here in a moment, but for now I want to look at, real quick here, for awareness sake, the tempter's tactics. I know I like alliterating and all those things. I hope it's not a distraction. I hope it's a way for us to remember it. But let's look at the tempter's tactics. The fact is, the Word of God here, even in the temptation of our Savior, even the words of the devil, because God put them in this book for us to see, they are profitable for us. Even when it speaks of him and his wicked plans. And so, for again, for awareness sake, let's look at some of his tactics. You know, most Christians... If you ask them about the temptations found in the Bible, what what do you think the most answer is? I didn't do a poll on this, but I would assume that most answers when they, or most people would respond with, I know about the temptation of the Garden of Eden, and I know about the temptations of the Lord. And there's thousands of other ones in there, but these probably are are reminded to us, the temptations in the Garden of Eden and here in Matthew chapter 4. You know, thinking about Genesis chapter 2, after God commanded man not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil in Genesis chapter 2, Satan comes along in Genesis chapter 3. He said, did God really say that? Did God really say that? Half God said. So our first tactic that we see in the tempter is that he attacks the word of God. He always attacks the word of God. And in our text here, even even here in our text, in the gospel according to Matt, look at the end of Matthew chapter 3, the last verse. It says, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So God just said that this is my beloved son. But when we see that same beloved son, our savior, when we see him led into the desert in chapter four, the first words out of the tempter's mouth is, if thou be the son of God, if thou be the son of God. I mean, just 40 days prior, Jesus or God said that, This is his beloved son. And now Satan directly challenges his words again. Really? 
I must tell you, Satan is, again, always attacking the words of God. You see, the devil knows the power of truth. The devil knows the power of truth. You and I should know the power of truth. He knows God's words are powerful. This is why he challenges them so much. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, I've preached on Hebrews chapter 4 there before, but I like that last reference there. You don't have to turn there, but it says, the Bible is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It lets us know what is right and what is wrong. That is a powerful tool in our hands. In fact, there's not a greater weapon in our arsenal against the temptations of sin and self and Satan than the Word of God. And no greater tool to tell us to, that what else can tell us with, with object, objectivity and clarity what's right and what's wrong. There's a lot of things in this world that says this is right and this is wrong and whoever has the most influence is that's right to him or that's true to me. This is the truth. This is the truth. Unfortunately, and to our own daily demise, myself included, it's probably the least used weapon when it comes to our temptation. The least used tool by Christians today, probably in competition with prayer. Instead of the Bible, many times we turn to every direction possible, looking for answers, maybe even Google or DuckDuckGo or whatever it may be. What's the answer to this? We turned there looking for actions, knee-jerk reactions to life. But this wasn't true of our Savior. He went to the Word. He knew full well, Jesus knew full well, the power harnessed in every word of truth and deliverance found within the passage. After all, they're His words. He wrote them, every jot and every tittle. You know, I, I long for churches today, ours included, to fall in love again with the Word of God. To, to love it, to, to cherish it the way it's supposed to be cherished. Not that long ago, during the Cold War, here over here in Europe, it was illegal to own a copy of the Bible. Uh, and this one, this one story here in Bulgaria, there was this man who had two impartial or two partial copies of the Bible. Uh, the first one was missing like Genesis, Exodus, and, uh, and Revelation. And the other one, I forget which one it was, but not those. And... It was believed that people would go through the Bible and take out the first pages and they would use them to roll cigarettes because that's what they thought of the scriptures. But not for this man. He was sitting down with a typewriter that was older than he was and he was printing out both of those Bibles combined so that he could have a copy of the Word of God. A covert missionary came along who went by the name of Brother Andrew. You can read a lot of his stories. Um, he was very well known during the Cold War. Uh, he smuggled in the first of many complete Bibles that very night while that man was sitting at the typewriter. And he would change hundreds of lives. Well, the Word of God would change hundreds of lives. Well, that old man said, he asked him, what would you do with this Bible? And that old man says, well, I'm going to give this one to the church because they don't have a copy. He's like, what? The church doesn't have He's like, no, the pastor just preaches from memory. They don't have even a partial copy of the Word of God. And as he was saying that, tears were falling down his face on the Bible he was holding in his hands. He loved the Word of God. Friends, we need to fall in love with the Word of God. In our hands, in your hands right there, whether it's on an iPad or an iPhone or an Android or whatever it may be, or even in print, we have God's love letter to us. The words of life to us. 
In our hands, we have the greatest asset for victorious Christian living. Let's get into the Word of God. So Satan attacks the Word of God because he realizes that power that's in there. But in attacking the Word, the written Word, he also attacks the revealed Word. He attacks the revealed Word. He attacks the Son of God. Look at verse 3 again. If thou be. Again, God just said so in his word, but now not only did he challenge his word, he's challenging what those words mean. If thou be the Son of God. Look again in verse 6. If thou be the Son of God. Over and over again. If thou be the Son of God. We have already mentioned this a little bit, but think about that. You know, there Jesus is, out in the middle of nowhere in the desert, 40, year, or 40 weeks ago, 40 days ago rather, Christ was baptized. He went there with John the Baptist. Y'all know the story. He's publicly approved by God. He gets out of the water. Now, I don't think, I go back in my mind, I tried to envision those things. I don't think John the Baptist had a whole lot of beached house there to wrap around the baptizees, people who just got baptized and they walk away drying. I think they just get out and they let the, the sun dry and maybe, maybe the Lord did that and he fellowshiped a little bit maybe with uh, Andrew and, and Peter and those guys that were there, even the Apostle John probably. And then he just walks off, led of the Spirit, into the wilderness to fast and to be tempted. His last meal was very, could, very well, could very well be before the baptism. But there he is now. He's sitting down on a rock maybe. I don't think it was the park bench, but out in the middle of nowhere. He's hungry. He's hungry like most of us have probably never been hungry. I've not fasted 40 days. And here comes the devil. You know, a man's energy level is quite depleted after 40 days. I mean, 40 days. There's probably some, some things going on, physically speaking, that are lacking in other areas. 40 days and 40 nights without food, Jesus was no exception. He was human. He, he suffered the ailments that came along with no food. He probably even looked uh, depleted. Remember later on when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, he said, when you fast, don't tell the world and do it in secretly with the Father. And when you go out into the public, make it so you look like you're not fasting. You know, whatever that may be, don't go around and say, oh, I'm so tired, I'm doing this. It's between you and God. So we have to assume the same thing is true here, but after 40 days, you could probably tell a little bit. And here comes Satan, and he arrives with disdain. Can you see the picture there? Satan walks up, and here is the Lord. He's sitting there all depleted, tired. You're the Son of God? If you're the Son of God, do this. Do that. Are you really the Son of God? You know, Satan, his challenge and those words there really didn't change much in the, 30, or in the three years that Christ and his ministry there. You remember the, the naysayers on the cross when Christ was hanging up there? They looked at him and said, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. What did they say next? If thou be the Son of God, come down. If, if, if. If you're the Son of God, do this. You know, it's no surprise that Satan refused to accept Jesus as the Son of God. And I think about it, here we are 2,000-some years later, you can draw a line down the faiths, even those who call themselves Christian, of who they say Jesus is. Is he the Son of God, or is he not the Son of God? Satan is thrilled and would be thrilled with some so-called Christians today who say Jesus is his brother. It's nonsense. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. 
And the biblical truth is Jesus is the Son of God, all God and all man, not a created being. Yes, his life and the flesh began in the manger, but he's always been. The Alpha and Omega, the same yesterday, today, and forever. The eternal Son of the eternal God. And Satan attacked the Word of God, and he went right to the deity of Jesus Christ. You know, today he's still attacking the deity of Jesus Christ. All throughout. I mean, isn't it confusing? Why do we have so many religions, even Christian religions in the world today? It's nonsense. The deity of Christ, it will help you separate many of those. The deity of Christ. But not only did he attack the Son of God, he also attacked the providence of God in all three of his attempts here. Or his temptations. In the first attack, uh, he attempted Christ with food, or what Jesus was in need of. He says, If thou be the Son of God, command these stones to be made bread. You need food? Make bread. You know, Satan loves to give us what we want. Satan loves to give us what we want. God loves to give us what we need. There's a difference there. And while it might not be bread for us, Maybe today, maybe it will someday. Satan often tempts us with what we truly desire. And many times, those things are going to come our way anyway. I mean, think about that for a moment. How many days did Jesus fast? 40 days, right? Was the fast over or was he halfway through? It was over. The Bible says in verse number 2, And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward hungry. It's done. It's over with. So if the fast is over with, can Jesus eat? Absolutely. He can eat without sinning. He can do what he wants to do. He can find food. I mean, he's in the middle of the wilderness. I mean, he can do all kinds of things. Jesus could partake in eating without sinning. I mean, even in the Garden of Eden, think about this. Were Adam and Eve able to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil without the devil's influence? Were they able? Of course they were able. The devil comes along and just encourages them to do what he knows will destroy them. My point is that Satan is the father of lies. He's a mastermind at deception. And there are always strings attached. Always. He often tempts us with things that we can acquire on our own. And he often tempts us with things we do not have. And many things, those things, many times those things that we don't have, they're going to come along anyway. And they're and they may even be provided by God. But God, he gives us, we operate off faith. The Bible says in Habakkuk 2, 4, I think it is, the just shall live by faith. So there's some things in this life that God doesn't want to give us right now because he knows that faith is more important than those things. But where God sees, where God provides an opportunity for faith, Satan sees an opportunity to exploit in verses 5 and 6, read those things. It says, Then devil, the devil taketh him up into a holy city, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee, charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. So Satan even quotes scripture and tempts the Lord with God's providence. Think about this. If the Spirit led Jesus Christ to jump off the temple, would his angels bear him up? Absolutely. Absolutely. Of course they would. But for Jesus to jump presumptuously would be to tempt God. In fact, that's his response. It is written, Thou shalt not tempt, O Lord thy God. And in many ways, we're guilty of this. 
This is this passage here written obviously many, many years ago. We look at it and we don't think any applicable any, any kind of application, but there is. In many ways, there's, we're guilty of this. For example, say I sat down one day and I'm a young man and I created my budget and I realized that I don't have a whole lot of money. And I realized that I can maybe afford a, a $200 car payment or a 200 euro car payment. And without seeking God, I just remembered all those verses that Bible says, you know, God's going to provide, Jehovah Jireh, God's going to take care of me, all of those things. Without, I don't seek the Lord. And I go out and I acquire a vehicle with a payment of 400 euros a month or $400 a month. And I walk away thinking, God's going to help me take care of those $200. That's tempting God. We did not go to him in prayer. We did not seek his face. We just went off those if you will, we took those texts out of context and we applied them to us personally. Well, God said that he will never leave me nor forsake thee and, and so many other things. And well, he'll, he'll provide those 200 euros. Now, I'm not saying he won't with the right mindset, but it has to be God's leadership. Without trusting God, we are ripe for failure. Again, in this scenario, that's not faith, it's presumptuous. There are certainly times when we are forced to trust God in this life. And when we pray through these things, we are not to tempt God. We're not to just step out just to say, just to see if God will do something within reason. You know, I'll give you an example. There's a British Christian a few years back in the middle of the 1800s up in England. His name was George Mueller. He's got a, a nice autobiography. You can read that out. Uh, but he, he became well known for trusting God through prayer. He built many orphanages throughout England and saved many children that were, were otherwise would have died in the streets, uh, possibly. He loved children. And there was an occasion on this one day that I, that I read about, I'm sure there's probably many more, where he ran completely out of money to feed the orphans. No money. No food in the cupboard, no can of beans, no bread, no nothing. And he set all the children down on that table that one fine day and he led them in prayer as if they had food on the table. And he prayed and he thanked the Lord for the food they didn't have. Well, un unknown to him, the God had already laid a little heart of the baker to bring food by. Within the hour, he brought food by. And you call it what you want. This is, this is history now. There was a milk, milk guy going by and his, uh, his cart broke down. And obviously, back in those days, you have to give milk to its, to its source. His cart broke down right in front of the roadway in front of the orphanage and came and knocked on the door. Hey, listen, we got milk. If it don't get consumed today, it's going to go bad. God provided. He prayed and God provided. George Mueller also prayed in the beginning of his mission there for the orphanages. He would go to these funds God had clearly laid in his heart. He was convicted that God laid them on his heart to build orphanages. He had no money in his pocket and he would go to auctions Right? You know, I've been to auction before where that guy's out there talking really fast. I can't do that very good at all. And uh, they were sitting out there. He was auctioning off this large building. And I don't remember the amount. I think it was like 100,000 pounds at that time. And George Mueller with not a dime in his pocket, you know, up, all the way up. He went to 100,000, sold to George Mueller. Had nothing in his pocket. Had to pay it in 10 days. God provided every single penny. He followed the Lord. That's not what we're talking about here in Matthew chapter 4. If the Lord would have jumped without being led of the Spirit, He would have been tempting God, and He didn't do that. He is our Savior. We must follow the Lord, and we'll come back to that following here. The difference is that we must be led of the Spirit, and that's our great takeaway. God will always provide according to His will, but we must be led of the Spirit. It is the key to life, being led of the Spirit. 
during that time where God allows us to exercise our faith, be mindful of this, the devil will see an opportunity to exploit. It's a very precious time, the building of faith, and the devil knows that. When we're waiting, don't let him in. Don't let him in. Resist the devil. Resist the devil. What happens when we resist the devil? He runs. He flees from us. And whatever the devil's approach, whether he attacks the word of God in our lives, the son of God or the providence of God, know that God is greater. God is always greater. God even promises that he will provide a way for us to escape every single temptation, according to Paul's writing in Corinthians. So the tempter's tactics are, are dangerous. There's no doubt about it. But our Savior is superior. Our Savior is superior. You know, I love the fact personally that our Savior leads by example. In the military, we hear that a lot, lead by example. He doesn't browbeat, although some in the military might do that. But he doesn't browbeat. He doesn't use guilt as a motivator. He simply says, follow me. Follow me. He lives out for us a perfect example. And we see this example here in Temptations, crystal clear in Matthew chapter 4. Look at verse number 1 again. Then was Jesus led. He was led. What do you have to do personally to be led? Okay. Follow is what I was looking for. You know, I've got to have all F's here, you know. Follow. Y'all don't even know that yet. But we must follow. To be led, prayer, submit, all those things are true. We must follow. You can't lead a non-follower. Personally, I found it easier to lead leaders because leaders know what it means to follow. And I'm convinced that the best leader is a very good follower. But it's easier to lead leaders. And Jesus was clearly a leader and he was led. He followed. Again, I enjoy reading this verse, but I think we often forget and we overlook the fact that Jesus was led of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. I mean, look at that verse. It's clear, as clear can be. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. That was his purpose. In other words, Jesus followed, and whatever the devil may have thought about this temptation, Christ went there to meet him. He went there. That was the plan. I mean, think about that significance. Satan, again, who's not all-knowing, he thought maybe he, maybe he thought he had to drop on Jesus. Well, I'm going to get him now. He's starving. He's hungry. Maybe I'm going to go ambush him right now. But no, Jesus went there to meet him, led of the Spirit. In preparation for this fight to meet the devil, Jesus was hungry on purpose. In his preparation to fight this spiritual battle, he didn't rely on physical things. He purposely took those things away. Forty days he took those things away. His energy was depleted on purpose. That's how he prepared for spiritual battle. It flies in the face of everything we do today, no? That's how he prepared. As a man, he followed God. And while God enables us to fight in many different ways today, it all begins with following Jesus Christ regardless of what lies ahead. And we don't know the future, but he does. He does. Remember when Jesus walked on the water in the midst of the storm? Remember there before that, they had the crowd there, and they, he sent the crowd away. Jesus went to the mountains, and he sent the, the Bible says, Jesus constrained his disciples to get into the ship. Well, what happened when Jesus wasn't in the ship? This crazy storm came, right? I mean, Peter, fishermen, seasoned fishermen, these guys are, are fearful, and here comes the Lord walking on the water. But my point is that he sent them into the storm. 
He sent them into the storm. There's some uh, folks who believe that that storm was satanic, and God sent them right into the heart of it. He says, go, go. They didn't know. God knew. He constrained his disciples to get into the boat. He sent them into the storm, much like the Spirit led the Son into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Jesus followed. Jesus followed. Even in our memory verse for this month, the Bible says, follow me. Jesus says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. You know, it's okay to pray that God would keep us from temptations. In fact, that's part of the Lord's prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. But regardless of where he leads, we are to follow him. Sometimes we neglect our salvation by not following he who saved us. Let it not be said of us. We need Christians today to simply stand up. As simple as it may sound, I have decided to follow Jesus. Just simple. I have decided to follow Jesus. The Spirit led, Jesus followed. May we follow his example and do the same. But not only did he follow he focused. I love this. I love this passage more today than I've ever had in my life. But remember Satan's tactic, tactics again. He attacked the written word of God and he attacked the revealed word of God. The word written and the word manifested. The, the, the Son of God. If thou be the Son of God, he said. If thou be the Son of God, do this, do that, so forth. But notice that Jesus didn't take the bait. He comes along and says, "If thou be the Son of God," and Jesus didn't even respond to that. He stayed focused on the truth. He did not even respond because he knew who he was. He'd never responded in kind. I love those, those, those earthly sayings, those man sayings, you fight fire with fire. Does that make any sense? I mean, what do the firefighters fight fire with? Water. I mean, it makes no sense. It makes, whatever, bad English. But we are to fight the devil with the tools of God. If thou be the son of God, he said, then do this. But Jesus did not respond in kind because he knew what was written. He knew the truth, and we too must stay focused on the truths of God's Word. I mean, when all is falling apart in our lives, or even when all is going well, we must stay focused on the Word. We must stay focused on Christ. We must study the Word. We must read it. We must heed it. We must know the truth. So when, the Satan, so when Satan comes along, get this now, if he tempted him, our master, remember uh, when the Lord is talking later on in the Gospels, you'll get to it if you're in our reading plan here, the Lord says the disciple is not above his master. If they call the master Beelzebub, and they call him a gluttonous and a whiner and all those things like that, what are they going to call his disciples? So if they tempt Jesus, if Satan tempts Jesus, he's going to tempt us. So when he comes along, and he comes to us, and he says, Shannon, if thou be a child of God, you would you would probably do this better. You would probably look different. You would probably wouldn't sin as much. You wouldn't fail your father as much. If you were really a child of God, you'd be living better. Or better, you would probably, if you were really a child of the king in heaven, wouldn't you have all kinds of riches in this world? Wouldn't you be the richest man in the world? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you, wouldn't you? If God were really your father, if you truly had eternal life, if Christ really saved you, on and on and on the devil could go. But friends, we are not to be duped by such antiquated temptations. We have the word of God. We have the truth to keep us straight. Stay focused on the truth. Don't be distracted. There's a lot of rhetoric in the world today. And all of it's, as we say in Tennessee, hogwash. Well, most of it. It's hogwash. It's nonsense. Stay true to what we know to be true. Stay focused 
on the Word of God. I love this. I love the passages here in Romans 10, 9. You probably hear me quite, quote it quite often. But it says, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Friends, those are black and white words. Those, are a prom- those words are a promise from God. Jesus, John 3.15 says, Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Those are bold Black and white words. Don't let everybody tell you. Don't let anybody tell you any different. That is the truth of God's word. He that hath the Son hath life. He that does not have the Son does not have life. First John 5.13 says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that's, that's you and me, that ye may know that ye have eternal life. Stay focused on the truth. Don't be distracted about all the things in this world. Stay focused on the truth. And I'm not saying that we should stick our head in the hole and just ignore all the news. I don't think. Maybe that would be nice for a while. But we've got to stay abreast of what's going on, especially in our our community. But let this be paramount in all that we do, the truths of the Word of God. Stay focused. Don't let the devil cloud your salvation. And don't doubt in the night what God gave you in the light. That, that phrase right there has kept me going strong many times. I know that God's called me to preach. I know that God's called me to be the pastor here. There's sometimes I just, how can I ever do this? Don't doubt in the night, your dark times, what God's given you in the light. Stay focused on the truths. Our feelings don't change the truth. Follow the book. Stay focused on the truths of God's word, of God's word. And in our great example, that we, who we should emulate, we see that Christ followed, he stayed focused, and then lastly, he fought. He fought. He was a soldier. Satan attacked both the written and the revealed word of God with great detail, with great prowess, if you will, even quoting scripture, Satan did. But Jesus stayed focused on the truth and fought the good fight of faith. Over and over, it's almost like Jesus responded that Satan would attack and Jesus would say, like, well, there's a book. And he would come back with something else. Well, it's written. Well, there's this book over and over and over again. Jesus is going back to the truth. He didn't come out and say, well, I'm the son of God and you need to leave me. He didn't do that. He, he, he fought the devil as we should fight the devil. He is our example. Later on to the Pharisees, Jesus would tell them, search the scriptures. For in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. No surprise, Jesus was there in the, in the wilderness with the devil. It is written. If you actually read that, you will see that it points to me. So go about your merry way, Mr. Devil. But it is written, the Lord's response to that, resist the devil, and we see that happening here, and the devil flees. What is written proves that Jesus is in fact the Son of God. The devil tempted him with things that are temporary, make food, uh, uh, tempts him with many things that are untrue. And again, our Lord's response over and over and over again, it is written. All three responses, it is written. It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. You know, Paul would write about this later, but Jesus took the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God, and he fought. He fought. And as clear as clear can be, both Satan and Jesus used Scripture. You see that, right? Both of them used Scripture. Both of them. But 
Satan had no power because he did it out of context. In verse 6, Satan says it is written, but his use of the holy writ, if you will, was blasphemous and out of context. In fact, he used scripture to tempt. He used scripture to tempt. Oh, let's be very careful. Maybe, maybe this is an obvious statement, but we are not to follow his wicked example here. We are to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our great example. It might go without saying, but I want to point out that I don't think Jesus had a copy of the Torah in his hand. I don't think he was there after 40 days. He had the Pentateuch or the Torah or any, any scroll of anything in his hands. He didn't look down and, and read Deuteronomy 16, 6, or 6, 16, where it stated, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. He knew what was written. We must be in the book. And for us, so for us to follow our Savior's pattern in defeating temptation, for us to follow the Lord, for us to stay focused on the truth, and for us to fight off the wiles of the devil, we must know what is written. Otherwise, we cannot say it is written. On my wall in my study above my desk, I have a, my wife made a, I don't know what you call it, but it says, study to show thyself approved unto God. It's a nice reminder that keeps me on track to study, to show myself approved unto God, study to show myself able to fight off the wiles of the devil. So when those temptations come, I can also say, and you can also say, it is written, it is written, get away from me, flee from me. And this week, may we honor our God by meditating in the truths of what is written. Be aware of the tempter's tactics, yes, but more so. Follow our Savior's example, and let's demonstrate this Christian life. The God who lives within us is more powerful than anything on this earth. We can live victoriously. That is my challenge today. It's my challenge. God's challenge to me as well. I pray that this has been a blessing to you, and it helps us to stay focused on what's right and to live that righteous life, not out of guilt, but because of grace, because we love Him. Let us let's go to the Lord in prayer.